quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fight night. No Donald Trump, but plenty of fireworks at the first Republican debate. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. With the frontrunner's legal peril hanging over everything, can any of his rivals break through? Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is here. Plus, burning down the House. With President Biden's poll numbers stagnant, his one-time competitor heads to a key state with a warning. Democrats must reject the corporate wing of the party. I'll speak with Senator Bernie Sanders in moments. And still dreaming. 60 years later, Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for America is still very much a work in progress. Let's not give up. Let's not give in. Dr. King's son and family join me to discuss what still needs to be done to make his dream a reality. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is waking up to tragedy again. Authorities say three black Americans and the white shooter are dead after a racially motivated attack in Jacksonville, Florida. The FBI is investigating it as a hate crime. And the sheriff there said the shooter hated black people and wanted to kill black people. The horrific incident caps off a historic and sad week in the United States. Donald Trump is now the first president in American history to have a mugshot and an inmate number to go along with it. Trump and his 18 co-defendants have all surrendered at the Fulton County Jail. And tomorrow, the legal fights over who goes to trial, where they go to trial, and when they go to trial get underway. While the former president was finalizing his plans to turn himself over in Georgia, the Republicans hoping to replace him as the leader of their party battled it out on their first debate in the election cycle. And a lot of the not-so-friendly fire was sent in the direction of my first guest, a Washington outsider who has been very much rising in the polls. Joining me now is 2024 presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, sir. I want to start with what I began the program with, which is this uh, racist shooter killing three black people in Jacksonville yesterday. What is your reaction to the shooting? It is such a tragedy and my heart goes out to those families. This should not be happening in the United States of America and it is wrong. The reality is we have a mental health epidemic in this country. There are reports that this particular individual, the perpetrator, was indeed evaluated for mental health deficiencies as well. And I think we need to have to have the courage in this country to bring back a practice of putting back psychiatrically ill people who pose a risk to their communities into psychiatric institutions, not just drugging them up, but faith-based approaches and other approaches that fill our longing for purpose and meaning in this country. I think it is just a shame that we even have mass shootings like this, be it the one that happened in Florida, be it the recent one, the Nashville shooter in a Christian school, killing six in a school, We have to address that mental health epidemic, and we need leaders with the courage to do it. 
But my heart goes out to those families, and I hope something like this never happens again. Mental health is one aspect of of these shootings, and apparently, and we're still learning uh, a lot about uh, what happened, the facts are still coming out. Uh, Also, this was very much apparently racially motivated. Uh, The sheriff there said, point blank, that this shooter had, uh, had manifestos coming, three manifestos, and said specifically that he went to this dollar store with the intent of killing black people. I think that is heinous and deserves to be called out for what it is. The reality is we've created such a racialized culture in this country in the last several years that right as the last few burning embers of racism were burning out, we have a culture in this country largely created by a media and establishment and universities and politicians that throw kerosene on that racism. And I can think of no better way to fuel racism in this country than to take something away from other people on the basis of their skin color. I've been saying that for years. And I think that is driving, sadly, a new wave of anti-black and anti-Hispanic racism in this country. I think the right way forward is 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 if we want to stop hate and discrimination on the basis of race, let's stop discriminating on the basis of race and see what unites us as Americans. Because I I do not think this kind of racial division and any division is good for us as the United States. I believe that there are a lot of people of color in this country who don't think it was just lasting embers of racism, but that a lot more work had to be done, particularly given the history of the the, uh, systemic racism in this country with slavery and beyond. I want to ask you about a comment that you made about white supremacy in Iowa on Friday. I've never once encountered that yet. I'm sure the I'm sure the boogeyman white supremacist exists somewhere in America. I've just never met him. <laughs> never seen one. Never met one in my life, right? Maybe I'll meet a, uh, maybe I'll meet a unicorn sooner. And, and maybe those exist too. So just because somebody hasn't encountered one doesn't mean that the notion of white supremacy doesn't exist as a threat in America. What do you think goes through the minds of the families of the three victims in yesterday's shooting when they hear you say that white supremacy is basically a fantasy? I'm sure they're grieving for their loss, and I don't want to politicize those victims. Dana, this is a very sensitive situation where we should have nothing but foremost respect for those victims and not bring them into partisan politics. But I was responding to a question where someone asked me, what, have I, what racism have I experienced in recent years? And I answered honestly, most of that racism has come from the modern left. It's happening during the course of this campaign. Kara Swisher calling me Rama Smarmy the other day and reveling in in making twists of my last name. People effectively reducing me to the color of my skin and my attributes. That comes today from the modern left. But the reality is, this is part of a dogma in this country. Does still exist in the United States? I acknowledge that all forms of racial animus exist in the United States, including fringe branches. I mean, that's clearly what was at the, at the head of this mentally deranged individual responsible for this shooting, yes. But I think there are many forms of mental derangement that cause us to see one another on the basis of our skin color and our attributes. And I think what we need to revive, Dana, and it's my job as the leader, hopefully as the next president to do this, to revive our doctrine of e pluribus unum, not just celebrating our diversity and our skin-deep attributes, but celebrating what unites us across that diversity. That's what we've forgotten in the United States of America. Our true strength is the set of ideals that unite us. 
That's my job to revive as our next president. And I think that the next generation in particular is so starved for that, starved for commonality, starved for a nation that is unified, bigger than the sum of its parts. That's what we need to recreate in this country. And to those who say the remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, I say no. The right remedy is actually abandoning all discrimination and moving forward with colorblind meritocracy in the United States of America. You, you, you took it to, uh, to an, another level on Friday. In addition to the comment we played, you took issue with comments from Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She reportedly said, quote, we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown, vo- a brown voice. About that, you said, these are the words of the modern grand wizards of the modern KKK. You know, I'm sure, the KKK was responsible for more than a century's worth of horrific lynchings, rapes, murders of black people. How in any way are the views you're talking about comparable to the views and atrocities committed by the KKK? What I said is the Grand Wizards of the KKK would be proud of what they would hear her say because there's nothing more racist than saying that your skin color predicts something no, about the content you didn't, you didn't of your just viewpoints say that, you or your You didn't just ideas. say they would be proud. You said these are the words of the modern grand wizards of the modern KKK. It is the same spirit. You're right about that, Dana. I think it is the same spirit to say that I can look at you and based on just your skin color, that I know something about the content of your character, that I know something about the content of the viewpoints you're allowed to express. For Ayanna Presley to tell okay, me that's... that because of my skin color, I can't express my views, that is wrong. It is divisive. That is it is a, driving hate that is in this a country. Debate. This is dividing okay, that our is country a debate. to a breaking point. That is a debate that is, that is based on nonviolent discussion that you just said you're using rhetoric, which yes. she said she's using rhetoric. Uh, there is, that's one thing. And another thing is to say that she represents and she is a, a modern version of a KKK, which, as you know, was dedicated to the subjugation and violence against black people. How, how on earth is she a modern Dana, grand wizard let's be intellectually of that honest. kind of organization? Let- Let's be intellectually honest and get to the heart of what this debate ought to be about. There is a worldview that says that the remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. That if you're black or brown, you have to have a particular point of view. That's from Ibram Kendi. That's from Ayanna Presley, the people can, I quoted in my speech yesterday. But can There's you a have an intellectually have, honest says conversation of who you are, when you accuse you have her to be able of to have being your own a opinion. grand wizard Let's of have the, the KKK? Debate. Can you have that intellectually that honest discussion is, with that kind of rhetoric? Yes, I can, Dana, because the point... The point I'm highlighting is that even the people who, in good spirit, we all agree that the KKK was an awful organization that is a toxic stain in our national history. So given that we can start from that point of agreement, now that allows us to say, well, who actually sounds more like that organization today? The people who are calling for more racial discrimination on the basis of skin color. So, yes, I think that is an but intellectually it's not useful about starting point for a provocative like, discussion the whole, that we need to have in this country. The whole country. point is and I think the KKK that, I think the reality, wasn't Dana, just about rhetoric. You have to speak openly They lynched people. They murdered people. They raped people. They burned their and homes. And that was wrong. Simply that was because obviously wrong. Of, so, wrong. Okay, obviously, so, that, that, again, that is obviously a wrong thing If you want to have an intellectual discussion, do, do you think that maybe comparing her to the Grand Wizard and, and the, the notion of what she said to being a modern leader of the KKK was maybe a step too far? Or you stand by what you said? 
I stand by what I said to provoke an open and honest discussion in this country. Because there is a gap, Dana, between what people will say in private today and what they will say in public. I think we need to close that gap. I think we need to have real, open, honest, raw conversation as Americans. That is our path to national unity. And there are many Americans today who are deeply frustrated by the new culture I'm of anti-racism. Sure how that's really racism in new clothing. And we need to have that debate in the open. Dan, I think I'm that you're so doing sure how with due respect what many in the media do, of- picking on <laughs> picking on some fringe comment in the context of a broader context that I was offering it in a speech. All right, so you just said that your comment issue. was fringe. Let's have the courage to confront the meat of that. You no, know, I'm saying you drew a you fringe comment from a much longer as speech. As I describe my that would, I describe you picking one fringe comment from a long speech that I gave to duck debate from the real issue that I think you don't want to have, Dana, because I think you probably agree with me on this, that this is toxic I think rhetoric that this debate, from leading politicians I think that this debate on dividing is, us on the basis of race. And I want to have I the open debate. I think this debate is fascinating and interesting and opening and, 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 and important. What, what I did was I do too. explain to our viewers that you were asked a question and you took it to a point where you called a sitting member of Congress who is black who was having discussions about race, calling her the modern grand wizard of the KKK. And I'm just not sure how that's open and honest discussion. I want to move on, though, to another issue, a very important issue. Well, uh, and that before is I move on, I, I want to say the sure, question was, please. how was I actually able to speak? And her view is I can't share certain views because my skin color is brown. I disagree with her and we should have that debate in the open. But yes, let's talk about climate change because this is critical. You said on Friday that a man-made climate change has existed as long as man has existed. But I want to read to you part of what the Trump Trump administration said in a report. It said, uh, the the Earth's climate is now changing faster than at any point in the history of modern civilization, primarily as a result of human activities. Do you acknowledge that that is true? Here's what I acknowledge is true. Hard facts, the climate disaster-related death rate, tornadoes, hurricanes, heat waves, it is down by 98% over the last century. For every 100 people who died of a climate-related disaster in 1920, two die today. And the reason why is more abundant and plentiful access and use of fossil fuels. So the same anti-fossil fuel agenda today is actually resulting in more deaths than climate change or man-made climate change itself. Eight times as many people today are dying of cold temperatures rather than warm ones. And the right answer to all temperature-related deaths is more plentiful access to fossil fuels. That's the reality is the climate change agenda and the policies are killing more people than climate change. As you know, it's not about people dying today. It's about what is going to happen. Oh, I think it is all about people short, dying short term, today. Actually. In the short term and long term. I want to read more of the Trump administration report and specifically some of the areas where this climate crisis will uh, affect. Transportation system damages, poor air quality, deter- deteriorating human health, flooded coastal properties, and it goes on and on and on. So my question for you is about yeah. the remedy. If you don't want to cut fossil fuels, which you just said, you don't want to cut carbon emissions or promote clean energy, what would your policies be to slow things like droughts, like flooding and other damage to our planet? 
I think we should focus on adaptation and mastery of any change in the climate through technological advances powered by fossil fuels and other forms of energy. I have no opposition to what nuclear energy. What does that energy. mean? What then that I mean? do think it's a bit of a mystery. What, what does that mean is look at the quality of our buildings. Look at the quality of temperature controls. This is actually what has allowed human beings to die less of climate-related disasters today than before. And the reason I call the climate change agenda a hoax, Dana, is that it actually has nothing to do with the climate. This has to do with global equity. And the reason why is the same people who are opposed to carbon emissions are also among those who are most opposed to nuclear energy, the greatest form of carbon-free energy production known to mankind. This so doesn't you, make so sense unless you actually energy. call this is out for what your, it is. Is that global one of your equity. remedies? Absolutely. Oh, okay. I'm unapologetically pro-nuclear so energy. Saying, In fact, I've laid out a okay. plan to get government regulation out of the way for nuclear energy. Can I just quickly go back? So you're saying, like, build taller buildings and have better air conditioning and heating systems? That's your remedy for climate, the climate crisis? Well, there's a, there's a fuller totality of the way we use fossil fuels to live more advanced lives that protect us from all risks, not just climate-related risks, but all risks to humanity. Right now, most people who are dying are dying, actually, of lack of access to energy at all, not because of the effects yeah. of climate change. The models that you described are, I think, badly fabricated. And if you want a good piece of evidence for this, remember in the 1970s, that's not that long ago, in the 1970s, the same expert class was warning of a global ice age if we didn't stop using fossil fuels. That same expert class is now warning of global warming. So I think it is a fatal conceit of false hubris. And the reality is we should focus on human flourishing, not carbon emissions. That's what we should measure. Okay. Unfortunately, we're out of time. That um, data, the model that you just talked about again, was from the Trump administration, Donald Trump, who says, who you say uh, had a wonderful administration and, uh, and a successful presidency. I would love to talk more about this with you when we have more time. I really appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you, Dana. And he challenged Joe Biden for the White House in 2020. And yesterday, Senator Bernie Sanders visited an early voting state to lay out a political and policy strategy for Democrats. I'll talk to Senator Sanders live next. And then T-shirts and posters and cups. Donald Trump tries to turn his mugshot into cold, hard cash. Welcome back to State of the Union. As Republicans battle it out for their party's nomination, Democrats are fighting to hold their coalition together with polls showing low enthusiasm for a second Biden term. It could be why former Biden challenger and now supporter Senator Bernie Sanders took his message to the key early voting state of New Hampshire yesterday, where he laid out what he calls the agenda Americans need. Here's part of his speech. Democrats, through words and action, must make it clear that they stand with a struggling working class. In my view, if Democrats are prepared to do that, they will win this election and win it comfortably. If not, frankly, I am not sure what the election outcome will be, or for that matter, what the future of our country holds. Joining me now is Senator Bernie Sanders. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. Uh, In your speech yesterday, you urged Democrats to make it clear which side they're on when it comes to the working class. And you said if we're going to defeat the creeping authoritarianism and right-wing extremism, there has to be an ideological change, of course. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
Well, what I mean by that, Dana, is that the president has a right to be very proud of many of the accomplishments that we've achieved in the last three years. Unemployment, very, very low. We brought inflation down. We're investing in clean energy. We're rebuilding our infrastructure. Uh, we have made real progress in a number of areas. But the reality is that today, 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. We have massive levels of income and wealth inequality. Three people or more wealth in the bottom half of America. Our healthcare system is a total disaster. 85 million people uninsured, uninsured, underinsured, while the insurance companies make huge profits. The cost of pharmaceutical drugs, prescription drugs, sky high. So the point is, in my view, the president should tout his very good record. We have got to continue to defend women's right to control their own bodies. But we have to deal with the reality of life today. That's what Roosevelt did back in 1936. And that is to understand that we have massive levels of corporate greed in every part of society. Very rich are getting richer, working people are struggling. We have got to make it clear. We're going to stand with those workers. We're going to have a healthcare system that works for all. Lower the cost of prescription drugs. Yeah. Raise the minimum wage to a living wage. And so I, I, I think that was the message uh, of yesterday. You, you called it absolutely absurd that Republicans are gaining support, maybe even in, in some cases have more support for the working, from the working class than Democrats do. Yeah. Why is that? Why is the message that you right. gave in your speech that you just well, said right now not resonating when it's coming from the White House? Well, that's a great question. And here's the absurdity. You have a Republican Party that wants to give massive tax breaks to billionaires, a Republican Party that does not want to raise the minimum wage, a Republican Party that opposes legislation that will give workers the right to form unions, a Republican Party which wants to cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And the reason I think they do well among working class people is the Democrats have not been strong enough to oppose that agenda and, pre and present a strong alternative agenda. In other words, you can't be pro-labor and pro-worker unless you have the guts to take on these large profitable corporations who are exercising an unprecedented level of corporate greed. The American people have got to know the reason that inflation was high last year was not because primarily of the war in Ukraine or a breakdown in, in uh, supply change. It was because of corporate greed in the fossil fuel industry, in the food industry, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. These guys raised prices like crazy while they made record-breaking profits. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the UAW. In your speech, you referenced the fact that the United Auto Workers overwhelmingly approved uh, possible strikes at three major automakers. More than 145,000 UAW workers could be on the picket line next month if a deal isn't reached. I'm sure you've heard President Biden. He says that he's not that concerned about a strike. But do you think that he should support a strike? And do you worry that any of this and all of this could undercut an economic rebound? Well, Donna, one of the, I think, very positive things that's happening in America today is that working class people are standing up and fighting back. We've just seen the Teamsters take on UPS and win a really strong contract for their workers. We're seeing nurses all over this country stand up and fight back 
for decent wages and working conditions and for their patients. Right now, what you have is the big three auto industry. They're making huge profits. While real wages for those workers have not kept up with inflation over the last 10 or 20 years. So I very strongly support the UAW and their new leadership standing up and fighting back. And I certainly hope there is not going to be a strike. No one wants a strike. But the big three have got to understand they cannot have it all. They can't make huge profits, give exorbitant uh, compensation packages to their CEOs and ignore the needs of workers. So I hope they will sit down with the union and negotiate a contract that is fair to the workers uh, in the industry. Senator Sanders, Cornell West, who is a close ally of yours, he is running a third-party campaign for president. He recently criticized you for endorsing President Biden's re-election. Listen to what he said. I love the brother, and, and, and you know, you, even in love, people have deep disagreements about these things. But I think, again, he's, he's fearful of the neo-fascism of Trump. People look at Biden, they don't really want to tell the full truth. He's created the best economy that we can get. Is this the best that we can get? You're going to tell that lie to the people just for Biden to win? What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is that certainly is not the best economy that we can create. That was what my speech was about yesterday. We've got to join the rest of the industrialized world, guarantee health care at all. We've got to cut the cost of prescription drugs uh, in half. We've got to raise the minimum wage to at least 17 bucks an hour. We've got to build the affordable housing we desperately need. But where I disagree with my good friend, uh, Cornell West, is I think in these really very difficult times where there is a real question whether democracy is going to remain in the United States of America. You know, Donald Trump is not somebody who believes in, in democracy, whether women are going to be able to to continue to control their own bodies, uh, whether we have social justice in America, we end bigotry. Around that, I think we have got to bring the entire progressive community uh, to defeat Trump or whoever the Republican nominee will be, support Biden, but at the same time, which is what I did yesterday, is demand that the Democratic Party, not just Biden, have the guts to take on corporate greed and the massive levels of income and wealth inequality that we see today. Senator Bernie Sanders, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. And up next, Republican candidates are plotting their paths forward after the first 2024 debate. But who actually has the momentum and the fundraising to prove it? Plus, 60 years after his march on Washington, the family of Martin Luther King Jr. is here to reflect on his legacy and what comes next. I really do believe more after last night uh, that Donald Trump is not going to be the Republican nominee. Vivek Ramaswamy was just, you know, getting too out of hand. The moderators wouldn't try to control him, so I did. There was a kind of a lot of cross uh, chatter that was going on. And, you know, my thing is, is like, look, we're auditioning to be the president of the United States. Uh, you know, I'm not here to get in a food fight. Some morning after reviews from the 2024 field after the very first Republican debate this week. My panel is here with me. Uh, Scott Jennings, let me start with you and kind of get your overall takeaway of let's just start with the debate. Yeah, um, you know, my initial reaction was sort of centered on Ramaswamy because of 
you know, how much he dominated the attention uh, after the debate. But after 24 hours of thinking about it, I really think DeSantis actually may have come out as the winner. He'd made no mistakes. I think he advanced himself on a couple of uh, big time answers, especially early on his opening statement, uh, sort of indicting the Biden economy. So I think DeSantis did himself some good. I think Nikki Haley did herself some good. I was glad to see Mike Pence turn in a feisty performance. Uh, And on net, I'm just not sure the shtick of Ramaswamy is going to play that well over time. I think it wore pretty thin as the night wore on. Is there anybody on that debate stage, Nina, that would concern you as a Democrat? All of them concern me. I mean, as, as an opponent, meaning somebody who's <laughs> uh, most formidable as an opponent. Uh, the person that wasn't on the stage, and that's Donald J. Trump. I mean, his mugshot, he took it to a whole nother level, raising over $7 million since the mugshot came out. Uh, as one of the commentators, or, or one of the people said on the uh, commentators asked the questions, moderator, excuse me, you know, we're going to talk about the elephant that's not in the room. Well, the elephant that wasn't in the room dominated that stage, and he continues to be, to this, to this moment, the biggest threat. Dan, I, I was at the debate, and I, I was, um, a couple things stood out to me. We had eight people on the stage that clearly, in my view, had the, the experience, the skills, and the policies to go in on day one and really do a much better job than Joe Biden or Kamala Harris and turn the economy around and get us back on track. The other observation I had was being in this large room of, of Republicans, and these are uh, leaders in the Republican Party, they were wide open for turning the page. They are open to someone else besides Donald Trump because they recognize the seriousness of if Donald Trump were to be our nominee, this is really going to be a difficult process moving forward for the general election. And they are, they're looking at all of these candidates. And I agree 100% with Scott's assessment of the various candidates out there. Uh, DeSantis basically got off there without the cuts and bruises that, that he anticipated. Ramaswamy was trump light, But Nikki Haley showed many people that she not only has a foreign policy experience, she has the nuance and the appropriate response on abortion, which is a critical issue for the Republican primary, but also would be palatable in a general election. But this was an opportunity for any one of those candidates to distinguish themselves, to really grab the momentum, to seize a narrative. And none of them really did. I mean, they had this moment without Donald Trump there. And the big pieces that really came out of the debate were Uh, This moment when none of them could really be sure whether they should raise their hand or not about whether they'd support Donald Trump if he was convicted. So let's let's actually play that and we'll continue your your point. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. As you were. That is not a leadership moment. I mean, if you look at the folks on that stage, you had a few who were willing to unabashedly put their hand up and say, I will support this person for president of the United States, even if they are convicted of crimes. And then you had a handful of people who couldn't be sure and sort of looked to the left and looked to the right. And that moment was an opportunity for leadership. We saw none of it. And we actually really just saw how the Republican Party has been entirely co-opted by Donald Trump. So for these candidates, if any of them are going to break out, they're going to have to find a way to take him on in a way that's compelling. And that was a moment for moral leadership. And we saw absolutely none of it. But they recognize what they need to do in order to win this this primary. They need to keep Donald Trump's base fully on board. And if they were to go out at this stage of the game, knowing that he is innocent until proven guilty, although we, it does not look good for him, they have to go on and be able to thread the needle and saying, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt at this time. And if he is the party's nominee, 
I'm going to support him. I don't think it was about just threading the needle here. It was about the fear of Donald J. Trump. They fear his base. They fear him. And that's why they didn't have the courage. And quite frankly, DeSantis did not distinguish himself. He didn't deserve to be in the center of the stage. I mean, he was the main one looking around to see who else was going to support Donald Trump. He's scared of him, just like the rest of those people on the stage for the most part. Well, if they were scared, they they wouldn't be running against him. No, they're they're scared. They're running scared. the, The polling on this is actually really clear. 70% 70% of the American people in the last Quinnipiac poll said they would not vote for a convicted felon or a convicted felon shouldn't be eligible to be president. 58% of Republicans said that. And so, so why did they raise their hand? And so my sense is, as time wears on, this is going to become more and more clear. But as Alice said, Republicans are going to give Trump the benefit of the doubt until he is convicted it, by a jury of his it's peers. It's not just about the benefit of the doubt, though. Right. We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. We're going to put that in the parking lot. This is about something that Kate just brought up, which is they fear the Trump base. So they're going to say and do anything to ingratiate themselves to that base. And that is not courage and that is not leadership. Let's look at the other side of the aisle, the president who you worked for until recently uh, running for reelection and a man that you have supported in multiple uh, campaigns, Bernie Sanders just had him on the show, gave a very interesting speech in New Hampshire yesterday uh, where he said a a lot of things about the Democratic Party, about the need to kind of step up, talking about the working class and so forth. But also, if we are going to defeat creeping authoritarianism and right-wing extremism, there's got to be an ideological change, of course. That was directed at the party, but obviously the party leader who is running for re-election, well, President I, Biden. I, I'm not actually sure that's true. Let's take a step back. Bernie Sanders was in New Hampshire giving a speech in support of Joe Biden. Absolutely. Uh, Joe Biden's agenda. But he's he just helping, said so on, on your show. He did, but he's so, trying to help massage the message. Well, and I think there's an important thing to remember here, which is that, you know, Joe Biden has spent the last now two and a half years navigating an incredibly divided uh, uh, Congress. And that doesn't, you don't get carte blanche to do whatever you want. What that means, though, is that he is about getting results and he's about working in a way that uh, was able he was able to pass the most significant, some of the most significant infrastructure investments, the most significant uh, uh, legislation to combat climate change. I mean, he's made uh, historic. He's had historic success. And I think the other thing I would say uh, from, you know, having sat with Joe Biden while he was debating whether or not to run for president in 2018 and 2019, as he was thinking about it. He also believes that the Democrats have to get uh, work, the working class back. That is what Bidenomics is all about. It's all about making investments that allow middle class family, middle class families and working people to get ahead. And so in that way, he agrees with Bernie Sanders. And that's why he says there's so much more that has to be done. That's but what he's running on. If that speech yesterday was in support of Joe Biden, I pity Joe Biden if <laughs> Sanders is out there speaking out against him, because it was quite clear he was very critical of the Biden agenda. As he told you, 60 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Health care is a disaster and many people are struggling. But he has the nerve to call the Republican Party the anti-work party when Republicans are creating more policies to get people back to work and encourage um, entrepreneurship and encourage people Either to, to party get back and, and make to, a living to paycheck. The needs of everyday people. And I, I hear I, I hear Kate, I hear all of that. We got to be on the side of the people and the people are not feeling this economy. They weren't feeling it before. None of the, the, the stressors just happened overnight because President Joe Biden is in office. So stressors have been there, but they are being exacerbated. When people talk about the working class, who are you talking about? Is it all working class people or is it just a certain group of working class people? That is important. I thought Senator Sanders made points on the health care system and on 
uh, the economy that were very troubling. You played a clip from Cornell West. This third party effect in 2024 yeah. be a real problem for the Dems. Okay, everybody, thanks for that great discussion. Up next, thousands filled the nation's capital this weekend to mark 60 years since the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. So how much progress does his family think has been made in the past six decades? They're going to join me live next. Welcome back to State of the Union. Tomorrow marks 60 years since the March on Washington when Martin Luther King Jr. laid out his dreams for the future of America. This weekend, thousands gathered in the same location right here in Washington, D.C. to mark the progress that has been made since then and the challenges still ahead. Joining me now, Martin Luther King III, Yolanda Renee King, and Ardne Waters King, thank you so much for joining me, all of you. It's really an honor to see you all. I want to start, uh, unfortunately, with the uh, tragic news that we saw out of Jacksonville yesterday. You were commemorating your father's historic march on Washington, and three black Americans were shot and killed by a racist shooter in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, first of all, I must uh, send my condolences to the community and to the families but also to say we were talking about one of the issues was hate and hate crimes and what's being spewed in this country. In 2023, uh, we are seeing an emergence of things, and it's so tragic. We have got to, as a society, find a way to navigate through issues. You don't have to like me, but we have to understand how to deal civilly with issues. And we've got to do something to change that. And we not, not tomorrow. We got to do something now. I know there's hate crimes legislation, but it's unconscionable. It's unacceptable. It's un, it's inhumane and it's not America. It's been six decades, as we mentioned, since your father shared his dream that one day you and your siblings and your and your daughter would live in a country that uh, would not judge people by the color of their skin. And you said that day still has not arrived. No, it, it, it still has. That's, that's the problem. People may think in some individuals it doesn't. I mean, my situation personally might be different. But what about the masses of people? Our daughter, my wife would say, and which is true, has fewer rights today than she did the day she was born. The Voting Rights Act was struck down in 2013. Uh, women's reproductive rights struck down in 2022. Affirmative action struck down in 2023. So there are fewer rights than she ever had. Uh, and Andrea may even say something about that. Well, yeah, Andrea, I, I want to ask about that and please speak to it, but also about the fact that the focus of your father-in-law's speech in 1963 was as much about uh, sort of economic inequality as racial inequality and how they all basically are part of the same challenge. And those disparities still exist today. The black unemployment rate is more than double of that of white Americans. The median household wealth for white Americans is nearly eight times that of black Americans. Why is the gap still so persistent? I think it, it, it points um, to the fact that we still have much work to do. Um, my dear friend um, Jennifer Jones Austin and I actually just penned an op-ed for time.com a few days ago talking very with very real numbers about the disparities um, of poverty within um, the black and white community, particularly as it relates to to black women. Um, and I think that we are aware of those things. And there are a lot of um, people that are on the ground continuing to do the work to make sure that those disparities once and for all are erased. 
One of the things as well that I would like to piggyback on with Martin and talking about the, the march yesterday was the, the and then what happened in Jacksonville, it really was not surprising, but it certainly was heart-wrenching. And one of the things I immediately thought about was the parallels between um, 1963 and literally three weeks after the original march on Washington, the bombing and the killing of four black girls. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, you know, the same day when we had almost 200,000 people gathering together to stand for democracy in our country, we saw the um, we saw what happens with hate, the very thing that we were talking about was going on. And for a lot of people that question, well, why were we coming back together and how different are things from 1963? It unfortunately yeah. gave the, the, the demonstration of the work and why we are and where we are in 2003 compared to 1963, which is um, not far at all. And, and Yolanda, you have spoken out since you were even younger than you are now uh, about the need for change, for generational change. Talk about that as the next generation. Well, I think that... Um this weekend is the 60th, it's the 60th anniversary of um, the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech. And 60 years ago, my grandfather delivered um, his dream, his message, and, and that was a call to action. And 60 years later, uh, the dream still has not been fulfilled. We are not where we need to be. And so now, and, and to put it basically blatantly and plain, that the, it seems like the past generations, our parents' generations have failed us. And so now we have to take on the responsibility to make sure that we do not repeat the same mistake and to make sure that we fulfill the dream. All right. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for coming in. I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, still a lot of work to do, as you said, but it is important to commemorate such a historic and critical moment led by your father thank and your you. grandfather thank uh, you all those years us. ago. Yes, thank you for having us. And we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We've got another whole hour of State of the Union. I'll be joined by former Trump impeachment manager Jamie Raskin on the latest from Georgia, Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson after his debate performance, and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker on Joe Biden's bid for re-election and another all-star panel. Plus, next Sunday, a special edition of Fareed Zakaria GPS, Artificial Intelligence, Its Promise and Peril, right here on CNN at 10 a.m. Eastern. You won't want to miss it. Stay with us. State of the Union. We'll be right back. Ready for his close-up? The 45th president gets a new picture and an inmate number. This is a very sad day for America. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. As the country grapples with the meaning of a mugshot, I'll ask former Trump impeachment manager Congressman Jamie Raskin what happens next. Plus, an alternate reality. Republican voters get a glimpse at a Trump-free field on the debate stage. I pledge to you as your president, I will not let you down. Our nation is in trouble because of failed leadership. Who stood out and who may struggle to get a second shot at a national spotlight? 2024 presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson joins me next. 
And the other JB. He's a big Joe Biden supporter with big Midwest momentum. So what's his advice for the president? I'll speak with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is counting to 19. This week, 19 of 19 criminal defendants surrendered in Fulton County, Georgia. The former president and all his alleged co-conspirators now must answer a critical question. Go slow or go speedy. Is It is tricky for both prosecutors and for Mr. Trump. Ask different lawyers and you'll find varying answers about the strength of the Fulton County case against the president. And in case that wasn't enough to keep track of, yet another legal fight over what the Constitution allows already is taking shape. I want to bring in now Jamie Raskin, the congressman from Maryland. Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining me. Uh, let's start with the question of what I was just mentioning, which is the the fourth arrest. You have seen, first of all, how incredibly viral this mugshot has gone. Given how uh, intensely political it was, it is, and that is obviously an expected thing. Do you think taking that mugshot was necessary? Well, the, I think the critical thing is that Donald Trump and his co-defendants be treated exactly like everybody else would be treated in a similar uh, prosecution. Uh, Fannie Willis, the prosecutor involved, has uh, undertaken numerous state RICO prosecutions. And as long as this is consistent with everything that's happened before, I think that's the right thing to do. A former federal prosecutor in DeKalb and Cobb County said that the racketeering charge might seem like a little too much to a jury. He told uh, the Wall Street Journal, quote, I like a state side, but it's not I like the state side, but it's not a slam dunk. Anytime you bring a RICO case when it's not against the mafia, there's a chance that the jury thinks the case is overcharged. There's a massive danger in jury nullification. Do you share that concern? Well, um, RICO has been used mostly not against the mafia. If you look at all of the RICO prosecutions in the country at the federal and state level, and of course, there would be something strange about a law that applies only to one group. It applies to a pattern of racketeering activity that is organizing people together into a conspiracy in order to achieve an illegal end, in this case, the overthrow of a presidential election and substituting a counterfeit process made up of fake electors for the actual process that the people voted on. So there are lots of component criminal parts to it, and there were a lot of people involved. And that, to me, seems as if it's custom-made for a RICO prosecution, the way that we've developed it. If people want to talk about reforming the RICO statute, then we can analyze that. But it's been upheld against constitutional attack repeatedly. Five of the 19 individuals charged as part of this conspiracy are now asking to move to federal court. And it raises questions about whether a state can charge individuals for actions that they allegedly took when they were federal officials. Do you believe that these cases dealing with uh, individuals who were working for the federal government or elected officials in the federal government like the president belong in federal court? Well, there's no question that a state has the power to prosecute someone who is a federal official or a federal employee. I mean, just think about a federal official or employee who engages in a bank robbery or a murder, obviously the state would get to prosecute them. There is a statute which says that if a federal 
uh, officer or employee is conducting their federal work under an order from a superior to execute a federal policy, then they can petition to have that removed to federal court um, if they're being prosecuted for work that they were doing as part of their job. So that, of course, raises the question when Mark Meadows tries to remove from Georgia state court to federal court, Mm -hmm. whether he was actually engaged in the work of the federal government and he was acting pursuant to a federal policy, the court is going to have to rule on that. In any event, even if it is removed, all that this means is that the federal court will um, conduct the state criminal prosecution under the auspices Mm -hmm. of the federal judiciary. So you're saying it doesn't have much of a of a pragmatic change. I mean, one obvious change is you won't actually well, see it. In, this, in Georgia, you would actually have a camera in the courtroom. But beyond that? That's right. Well, we won't be able to see it. And also, uh, obviously, after uh, four years of packing the courts with um, Federalist Society bloggers, uh, someone like Mark Meadows is going to feel a lot more comfortable in federal court. There is a political irony there, of course, because uh, these are supposedly the big champions of uh, state courts and state law, but they're, tr- they're trying to flee from it as quickly as possible to get into the warmer climate of the federal judiciary, which they've worked so hard to gerrymander. A judge in Georgia is now saying that fake elector mastermind Kenneth Cheeseboro's racketeering trial will start on October 23rd. That's just about two months from now. Will it help Donald Trump and other defendants like Rudy Giuliani or Mark Meadows to see what happens in earlier trials and try to learn from it? Um, I imagine so. Um, you know, I, I think that the key thing here is uh, the establishment of the fact, because uh, Mr. Cheesebro has uh, petitioned for a speedy trial, that it's perfectly um, legitimate to have a trial uh, this year to make it happen in the fall and that the courts are fully equipped to do that. But uh, I think obviously the defendants are going to be able to uh, learn from each other's experiences, but uh, they're up against a mountain of evidence that they were involved in this complex conspiracy to accomplish a single criminal objective, which is to overthrow our actual presidential election and substitute a counterfeit process for it. 2024 presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, who will join me in a bit, he says that Donald Trump might be disqualified from holding office based on the 14th Amendment, which says that U.S. officials who engage in insurrection or rebellion or aid and comfort them cannot hold office again. You were not only an impeachment manager in uh, in the January 6th impeachment of Donald Trump, you were a constitutional scholar. So do you agree with Asa Hutchinson on this? Well, absolutely. And we've been saying all along that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment presents a clear and unequivocal statement that uh, anyone who has sworn an oath of office, and by the way, not just a president, but members of Congress and uh, others who hold federal office, um, who engage in insurrection or rebellion, having sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic, can never serve again in federal or state office. And this was added after the Civil War as a general constitutional principle. Um, and we have to abide by it. Uh, Donald Trump was was impeached by the House of Representatives for inciting an insurrection against the union. And then 57 of 100 senators determined as uh, 
a constitutional fact that Donald Trump had incited an insurrection. Um, so I think you've got robust bicameral bipartisan majorities that have already established this as a fact. And I agree with the conservative Federalist Society law professors who are out there saying, as well as Mr. Hutchinson, that Donald Trump is disqualified just as if he were running uh, and not a born U.S. citizen or if he were running and he were 24 years old. Before I let you go, I want to ask about President Biden uh, releasing a tweet literally as Donald Trump was arriving at Fulton County in the jail. And he said, apropos of nothing, I think today's a great day to give to my campaign. And there's a link to donate. Are you comfortable with President Biden fundraising off of Donald Trump's indictment and arrest? Um, I mean, I think it would be strange if uh, President Biden had to organize his campaign schedule around all of the court appearances and pleas and mugshots of Donald Trump. Um, I think Joe Biden should be free to run his campaign. And if it happens to coincide with something uh, happening in Donald Trump's uh, extremely uh, voluminous and complex legal docket, uh, that's Donald Trump's problem. It's not Joe Biden's problem. Yeah. Well, it was it was coinciding on purpose because he was fundraising off of it. But we're going to have to leave it there. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. And up next. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks thank you. Up next, a popular Midwestern governor gets called on to step up. He says he's fine right where he is. But what would he tell Joe Biden about how to rebuild his 2020 map? The Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, joins me in moments. And ahead, when telling the truth gets you in trouble, Asa Hutchinson takes a stand on the debate stage and makes clear he's nearly a man alone in the 2024 field. Welcome back to State of the Union. Attack ads shall appear uh, from Joe Biden. In fact, he wasted little time going on offense, attacking his potential rivals on the other side of the ballot on abortion. But days after Republicans tangled in Milwaukee, Mr. Biden finds himself trying to answer a question that's hard to shake. 436 days from the 2024 election, should he be the Democrat on the ballot in 14 months? His age and economic pessimism leave some inside his party saying maybe there should be another option. Let's talk to my next guest about all of that, Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois. Uh, he was a member of the Biden advisory team. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. You are, I think you're currently on the president's advisory board for re-election. Re recent national polling has him neck and neck against Donald Trump, a candidate who, of course, was just arrested for the fourth time. Why is it so close? Well, let's face it, uh, all the attention's been on the Republican side with the infighting and the debate that just went on. Um, they can't decide on who the challenger on their side is going to be to uh, Donald Trump. And it appears that the guy who's rising in the polls and the one who's going to be the, the big challenger to Donald Trump will be uh, Ramaswamy, who I just heard on your program say that uh, he thinks that uh, racism is over in the United States and uh, that white supremacy is okay. Uh, I think the American people understand that that's not where they are and that that's extreme. In fact, we see a smorgasbord of extremism on their side of the aisle uh, where uh, Joe Biden is just doing his job and for the last two and a half years gotten more done than most presidents get done in eight years for working but, families across the yeah, and United I, States. I hear you, Governor, but when polls show Joe Biden neck and neck with Donald Trump, who definitely has gotten a lot of attention, but 
you would think the attention, given that it's been four indictments, four arrests, has been negative attention. Why is the sitting Democratic president neck and neck with him? Well, I think when you put up a candidate directly uh, with Joe Biden and compare the records, uh, Joe Biden is doing much better than any Republican could. Uh, and like I said, he's gotten a lot done. You're saying that uh, you guys keep repeating that uh, Joe Biden is older than uh, you, know, you think he should be. But remember, he brings a ton of experience. This is a guy who's spent years in the United States Senate. He's worked across the aisle. Look at how much he's gotten done because he's worked across the aisle. And uh, why would you throw all that out? Mm. So it's experience. I want to ask specifically about the economy. Poll numbers, uh, again, show it's the number one issue for voters. It usually is. Here's one ad that's airing in battleground states from the president. Today, unemployment is at record lows. Our economy leading the world. Joe Biden passed historic laws to rebuild the country. There are some who say America is failing, not Joe Biden. But it, we've seen poll after poll show that that just isn't resonating yet with a lot of Americans. What is your recommendation as a Midwestern governor for the president to do to make that message resonate more? Do you think he has to acknowledge the reality uh, more that people aren't feeling the economic recovery that he sees and touts when it comes to the data? Well, remember, we've just come out of a terrible global pandemic and the economic consequences of that. It was Joe Biden that led us out of that. And it's true that uh, when people are hurting and then things start improving, it takes a while for people to start to recognize, you know, the actual the reality of the economy doing much, much better. There are more jobs. In fact, here in Illinois, I can give you an example. Uh, we have many more jobs available than we have people. That's good for workers and working families. Their wages are rising. Um, we are protecting a woman's right to choose in every Democratic state and even in the swing states. People believe that is an important factor in the 2024 campaign. We've barely begun to talk about that with voters. Yeah. And Joe Biden is the leader on so many issues that are important to their futures. You mentioned uh, abortion. It was, of course, a big topic on the GOP debate stage and continues to be in the race for the Republican nominee in your state in Illinois. There is a protection for the right to an abortion up until fetal viability. After that, around 24 weeks, abortions are illegal except for the life or health of the mother. Do you believe that more national Democrats should support that limitation on abortion? Well, I believe that is where most Democrats are, in fact. And, you know, it's about a woman making a decision for herself with her doctor, not with a politician in the room making the decision for her. Women should be able to do this on their own. And that's what we've done in Illinois. We've guaranteed that right. That's what's happening in Michigan, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. We're fighting to make sure that that happens by electing good people to their Supreme Court. And that is what is going. Those are the kinds of issues that are going to win it in 2024 recognition by the voters that it's Democrats that are standing up for their individual rights. Not all Democrats are as clear as, as you are about, and, and as you, your law now is in Illinois that you signed, about, uh, again, not just allowing abortion up until viability, but uh, making it illegal afterwards. So you think that that is where most Democrats are? Do you think that they should be more robust in explaining their position more broadly? 
Well, after 24 months, it is a decision made by a woman with her doctor. That's what's happening in Illinois, and that's the right that we've guaranteed. In fact, we're seeing people from across the country come to Illinois to exercise their rights at every point in this process, and especially you know, when women are being rejected uh, to exercise those rights in Indiana, in Iowa, in Kentucky, in Wisconsin. Uh, we're trying to change that across the country, but most importantly, protect that right here. We've seen tens of thousands of people trying to exercise mm -hmm. those rights, and we think that uh, in 2024, with the Republicans trying to essentially outlaw abortion across the United States and certainly take away women's rights, uh, that it's very important for us to communicate with voters that it's Democrats that are protecting women. Republicans are trying to take away those rights. You mentioned the president's age and that he should uh, lean into the fact that it brings experience. He would be 86 years old by the end of his second term if he wins re-election. And the president's age is an issue. It's not us. It's uh, the, uh, the voters who are uh, raising questions about it. He has said, watch me, and touts his uh, first-term agenda. But Americans seem to be looking for a bit more reassurance. Is that possible? How should the president handle that? Well, again, it's it's him actually accomplishing things that should be proof to people that he's the right man for the job going forward. Uh, nobody talks about the fact that uh, Donald Trump is similar age to uh, to Joe Biden. And uh, and the truth is that what Joe Biden has proven is that that age also brings experience. And one more thing that you should recognize, because you've seen Joe Biden over 50 years now in public life. Here's one thing everybody knows. This is a man who brings empathy to everything that he does. And I think the working families of America want somebody in the White House who actually cares about them and is kind. The Republicans, and particularly the leading Republican, have demonstrated cruelty all along the way. And that's just not something that the American people want in 2024. Governor J.B. Pritzker of uh, Illinois, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dana. And coming up, he broke with his party over Trump on the first debate stage. What will it mean for his chances to be on the second stage? Presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson joins me in minutes. Now that everybody's gotten their memorized, pre-prepared slogans out of the way, we can actually have a real discussion now. Is that one of yours? I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT. Don't make women feel like they have to decide on this issue when you know we don't have 60 Senate votes. 70% of the American people support legislation but to ban abortion the after Senate a baby is capable not. of experiencing okay. pain. We you know it's just going to leadership. Hold on. 70% of the Senate Governor does not. On stage fireworks at the Republican debate this past week, yes, that was this week. My panel is here with me now. Nice to see you all. Um, I'm going to start with you, Matt Mowers. You uh, work for Governor Christie. You saw him on that stage. Big picture, uh, what do you think the takeaway is for Republican voters, sure. particularly since Donald Trump wasn't there? Well, you know, I think too often we focus on who the winners and losers are, when really you want to see who took advantage of an opportunity to get in front of over 12 million Americans. And, you know, I'd say three and a half candidates kind of took advantage of that. 
Uh, Nikki Haley certainly rose to the moment. She had had a lot of uh, attention on her initial announcement in February. It's kind of lost some attention and movement until just the other night. Vivek Ramaswamy, I mean, there's probably folks in, uh, you know, our orbits who probably looked at him and say, wow, that guy was over the top. He was too much. He was too Trumpy. Republican primary voters love that right now. I think Chris Christie, who you mentioned, did very well, too. I mean, he was playing, obviously, to a crowd that was not in that audience. Uh, he's talking to independents in New Hampshire. He's talking to disaffected Democrats in New Hampshire who may become independents because they can't vote for Joe Biden in the New Hampshire primary. That was his audience. I think he delivered. And my half measure was Ron DeSantis. I know a lot of folks kind of compared him to Homer Simpson kind of hiding in the bushes or moving to the bushes. But uh, if you talk to Republican primary voters at home, he you know, hit singles and doubles and no one came after him, which although, gave him a great opportunity. Although in a post-debate poll, uh, the Washington Post did, he... They thought he did the best. Yeah, and I was talking to his team yesterday. They've been citing that poll yeah. to a lot of folks. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. 13 million people watched a yes. non-Trump debate. That's not nothing. That is not nothing. And look, I think it shows that regardless of whether Trump is there or not, the Republican primary electorate and probably other voters were watching to see, okay, what is the future of the Republican Party? What is the Republican Party offering? And what they saw was extremism. And they saw a party that on three key issues, even to their own voters, reproductive freedom, eight in 10 Americans support Roe v. Wade, guns, as well as climate change, where none of them could even come up with an answer. I mean, you saw post-debate focus groups saying young Republicans who care about climate change were disappointed that they didn't hear much of an answer. So I think the problem for the Republican Party, I agree, some folks had good nights. I think Nikki Haley did a good job trying to find a compromise and sound reasonable on reproductive rights. I think they tried to make the best of the moment. And yet, what a majority of Americans saw, if you're not a Republican primary voter, was that's the future of the Republican Party, and it is out of step with America. I think the big question is, a lot of what we heard, is it the future of the Republican Party or is it the past? Is it a Republican Party that doesn't exist anymore? I'm hopeful that the fact that you see, for instance, in that Washington Post poll, that someone like Nikki Haley has seen a lot more consideration from Republican voters. She's getting a lot of second looks. I think that's a good sign. Um, But at the same time, you still do have to wonder, you know, Donald Trump wasn't up there on that stage. How different does this look when the field narrows a little if Trump ever decides to hop back on that stage? I suspect a very different conversation. And if I could try to uh, play an intellectual game here and link one of your (laughs) earlier segments to this segment, Um, you had the Kings on, the March on Washington. an interesting historical footnote is both both um, John Lewis and Dr. King didn't give the speech they wanted to give because they feared it would alienate the people they needed to bring over the vast middle. So each of them tempered themselves. And I think in this debate, you saw Republicans refuse to do that in, in most cases. And so ultimately, the goal is, yes, to win a primary, but it is to persuade the majority of Americans. And I think that this, this debate, um, watched by a lot of Americans who were not Republican primary voters, may serve to alienate them. How so? Well, it's just, as Karen said, these are issues where the, the party showed itself, by and large, to be far apart from where Americans are on major and key voting issues, choice, climate, even, even the sort of pile on Biden on the economy is an argument that he has a very good counter to uh, in lots of ways based on his accomplishments and what we've seen in the economy recently. Well, that's not an argument American people are buying, though. 34% of Americans right now approve of President Biden's handling of the economy. Over 60% disapprove of his overall job performance at this point. So arguably, the Republicans on stage are actually speaking for the majority of Americans on that issue. I think, you, you know, to your point, you heard a lot of d- different ideas and different viewpoints on abortion. Nikki Haley, I thought, did a, a 
very good job putting in place a, a reasonable uh, position on abortion, that it appeals to independents in the middle. Uh, the American people aren't where the extremes of the Democratic Party are, and they're not where Mike Pence is either. Well, but actually, that's not the extremes when eight in 10 America, eight in 10 Americans don't agree on anything, and they support Roe v. Wade. And actually, having been part of this movement for over 10 years, I can tell you that what we've seen in the middle is a real shift. We even saw it in the anniversary of the overturning of Dobbs. A majority of Americans think actually women should make these decisions because they realize it's not about six weeks, 15 weeks, 20 weeks. And by the way, there's no such thing as a abortion up to the day of delivery. That's ridiculous. Well, there are but some places. There are. In, that's in, called in, a surgery, in, actually. That's not called an abortion. Mm-hmm. So uh, from a medical perspective, that's a political construct. But what I would say is those folks in the middle, what, what has changed since Dobbs, and I think this is something that Republicans are trying to grapple with, is the feeling of having a right, a freedom taken away, and the understanding since Dobbs has been overturned, what we've seen happening to women, criminalizing women, criminalizing doctors, women losing their lives because there's so much fear about what to do when people are saying, you know what, the women and her doctor should make that decision. Government what do you should see? be. Importantly, Nikki Haley specifically said we shouldn't be criminalizing women. She talked right. personally about her own yeah. struggle to have children. That's why I think... I don't want to speak for my Democratic friends up here, but I have to imagine watching Nikki Haley would make you a little nervous that you'd probably rather run against Donald Trump than Nikki Haley. The problem Haley's going to face is that I think one of the moments where she got the weakest response from the crowd was when she said, hey, everybody, Donald Trump's the least popular politician in America. We've got to move on beyond him. There were some boos out in that audience. And I think the Republican electorate has not yet decided Yes, we actually think that direction is more likely to defeat Joe Biden. They Definitely still think not. Donald Trump. I mean, every time totally somebody even win. remotely criticized Donald yeah. Trump, they were booed. Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson. Yeah, yeah but, well, well, as 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 our, our friend James Carville used to teach me, a man never stands taller than when he stoops to kiss an ass. And yet, on this debate stage, <laughs> Sounds like right? Like, I, I think a lot of the candidates they when, when they didn't when they didn't kiss up. Um, they got booed. And when they did, they debased themselves. And so they haven't cracked that code yet. Can I just say, I think that's the other challenge, right? We've been saying that people who haven't been criticizing Donald Trump haven't been doing so well. Well, the ones who've been supporting him, it's not like Chris Christie, who's been on the attack, is out rising in the polls. I think the challenge... And in I New Hampshire, still, he is. Yeah. Okay, that's one state of how many do you have to win? Important one. Yeah. But point being, I think nobody's found the right balance. Uh, and I think Nikki Haley, to her credit, was trying to figure out and trying to be the truth teller in the group. I don't know if that's going to work for her long term. Donald Trump's Republican critics argue that he's toxic to general election voters, especially your former boss, that he's going to lose to President Biden again. But a CBS poll taken before the debate says... That's not how Republican voters see it. I mean, look at this. You you think the candidate would definitely beat Biden. Trump is at 61 percent. And again, just like pretty much every other poll, um, everybody else is double digits behind and then some. You think this is very telling. I think it's very telling. And it's why folks like Ron DeSantis, who have tried to say, look, if you like Trump, but you want a better shot at beating Biden, go for me. Why that thus far has fallen flat. You see it in those numbers. Additionally, in that poll, they asked the Republicans who are considering people besides Trump. Well, why are you? And very few of them said it's I worry Trump can't win. I worry he's too controversial. It was things more like, oh, I'm just seeing what options are out there. I'm kind of curious. So they're not convinced yet that Trump can't win. I want to go over to to the Democratic side of the aisle and ask about a a, a fundraising letter that President Biden put out or his campaign put out just as Donald Trump was arriving at the Fulton County Jail. And it said, apropos of nothing, I think today's a great day to give to my campaign. And there's a link to donate and there's a kind of a blurb about democracy from Joe Biden. 
Is this the kind of thing he said he wasn't going to do? No, I think, I think he is, he has always said, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And, you know, when he is president, and I could make an argument that compared to the almighty, he's done a pretty good job on uh, <laughs> job creation, mm-hmm. unemployment down, record number of manufacturing jobs, lowering prescription drug prices. I'd be happy to do that all day. But when you are running against yourself, you don't look as good as you do when you look in comparison to someone else. And so um, so if he calls a little attention to the split screen, I think that's totally fair game. Well, it also was the night after the Republican debate. Right. So it's a comparison to here's what this field looks like and the crime, the Donald Trump crime syndicate image that we saw <laughs> later in the day on the on the screen. And here's who I am and here's what I've done. And I actually think the president, I'm going to go off of something that uh, Bernie Sanders said to you earlier, because I would actually tweak what he said. I think the, one of the things that the president can be doing and Democrats seem to be doing is reminding people, we're fighting to keep money in your pocket. Republicans are trying to take it out of your pocket. And there's more to the Build Back agenda, like child care costs, that would keep more money in your pocket. And that's the argument for re-election. All right. Great discussion. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Up next... The front runner, as we've been discussing, is very much still the front runner. Four indictments later. Why? I'll ask one of his competitors, presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, after a quick break. Welcome back to State of the Union. Joining me now is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is joining me from his home state of Arkansas. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start with a moment uh, on the debate stage. You were booed by the debate crowd for saying that you would not support Donald Trump for president if he is convicted of a crime. Uh, Last week, former Governor Larry Hogan told me that the fact that most candidates, almost all of them, besides you and Chris Christie, raised their hands was disgusting, and he called it an embarrassment. Is that how it felt on stage? Well, I was surprised. It was a very clear question as to uh, whether we would support Donald Trump if he's convicted of serious uh, felonies. And uh, I was the only one that that, uh, said very clearly that I would not support him. Uh, And so I was surprised at that. That didn't seem to be a difficult question to me. And I stood out at that moment. And whether I get booed in the audience uh, is not really the relevant factor. The relevant factor is our country. It's our party. It's about uh, standing on the principles that you believe in. And I stood out at that moment, and I'm proud of that decision. And it was the right call. And I hope more people uh, identify with uh, what I said. I want to ask about comments from Vivek Ramaswamy. He was talking last week. Uh, downplaying the prevalence of white supremacy, comparing Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley to leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. You heard him on this program this morning. Stand by those comments. You were a U.S. attorney and you prosecuted violent white supremacist groups. I believe you even negotiated an end to an armed standoff while wearing a bulletproof vest. Given all of that, what's your reaction? Well, what you recited is true. I've seen uh, white supremacy in action. Uh, I've prosecuted them when they turn violent and we put them in jail. And that's important for our society. And anytime there is hate actions like it appears to be in Jacksonville yesterday, uh, we have to make sure that that's not uh, something we're going to tolerate in America. And that's one of the reasons, as governor, I signed a law that uh, was our first hate crime law in Arkansas, 
making sure there was extra penalties for those that uh, committed crimes in the name of racial hatred. And so it, you know, whenever I hear Mr. Ramaswamy talk about this issue, uh, he's not really looking at the real life in America. Now we can move beyond that. And the other thing that I'm concerned about is Dr. King's uh, 60th anniversary of his speech. Uh, and he was about expanding the voting base. Mr. Ramaswamy wants to shrink the voting base and say those that are 18 years of age and to 25 can't vote. And uh, to me, that was a totally the wrong direction to bring young people in our party and set an example of where we need to move in our democracy and participation. So uh, I, I think those are really important points to make today at the, near this uh, anniversary of Dr. King's speech. I want to ask about something that another one of your competitors, Ron DeSantis, said this week. He said he would send the U.S. military onto Mexican soil on day one of his presidency to try to stop the drug cartels. Uh, One expert warned it would be a massive violation of sovereignty. You were uh, also, in your past, a top border official under George W. Bush, the head of the uh, DEA as well. Is that a realistic solution? Well, I tried to make this point in the debate when uh, uh, Governor DeSantis raised that issue to begin with, as well as others. And uh, there's a strategy that works in uh, going after the cartel. I did that as head of the DEA when I worked with the Mexican government to go after the cartels. uh, And we were successful to a certain extent at that time. But that's the kind of cooperation that you need to build. You don't invade another friendly country that has historically been a commerce partner with us, an ally with us. And so uh, you don't invade them. You work in cooperation with them. Sure, we need to put economic pressure on Mexico to cooperate to a greater extent in enforcing the rule of law. These are all points that uh, I made in the debate. uh, And you've got to not just uh, say what uh, sounds great at the time, that you need to invade or you need to drop bombs. Uh, Sure, we need to utilize the military for intelligence gathering purposes, but obviously we got to work in cooperation with Mexico. The Trump campaign, Governor, says that it has raised more than $7 million since his arrest in Georgia, close to $20 million total since he was indicted there. It's what they say. We haven't seen the FEC report, obviously, yet. If it's accurate, what do you make of that? Well, in some ways, it's not a surprise. Uh, Whenever you look at uh, the way Donald Trump has misled his supporters from day one and continues to do so, uh, he's uh, depending upon uh, those donations and everything that he does is designed to raise more money to uh, support his defense. And uh, right now, whenever you look at the state of the Republican race, I think what everybody saw in the debate was that there are good alternatives to Donald Trump in leading our party in our country that will take us a different direction than Joe Biden. Uh, But secondly, it's going to take the base to be able to change actually those numbers. I think that will happen over time, but it takes people standing up like I did on the debate stage. Uh, It takes uh, uh, people with courage that will tell the truth uh, in terms of where we are as a party and how this is a defining moment for our country. And we can't be a party of grievance that Donald Trump wants to lead us into or the past. It has to be the future and problem solving. And that's what I want to bring because that's what America needs right now. 
you it was <clears throat> a little tough for you to hit the 40,000 donor requirement in order to make it on the first debate stage. What has your fundraising been like since the debate last week? Have you seen an increase in donations and overall donors? Outstanding. Uh, and actually, uh, we did uh, go over the 40,000 mark. It was after two weeks of getting about 20,000 new donors. And even uh, on the debate night itself, we had almost 4,000 new donors that were added because of my debate appearance. And so momentum builds momentum and very optimistic about being on the next debate stage, uh, which will be in Simi Valley, California at the Reagan Library. Obviously uh, an important occasion and I expect to be there. So just so our viewers know, in order to get on that debate stage next month, you all the candidates need to hit 50,000 donors and at least 3% in two national polls. Uh, you have one. Are you confident? You said you're confident, but are you confident you will reach both of those um, milestones in order to get there? Well, it's, it's up to all your listeners and obviously <laughs> aceof2024.com uh, donation helps and we'll get there. The 3%, uh, we actually made that in a recent poll. It hasn't been recorded in Real Clear Politics yet. But we've made that 3%. I just hope that pattern continues. So we're going to continue with this message that's true, uh, that is defining, that separates me apart. And, uh, and I believe that will garner enough support to bring us to the next debate. Uh, former Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, joining me from Bentonville, Arkansas, your hometown. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Dana. And we will be right back. Welcome back to State of the Union. We end this week by asking you to come back for something you absolutely will not want to miss. CNN Films presents the story of a music legend who never got his due. Make sure you don't miss it. Little Richard, I Am Everything airs on Labor Day at 9 p.m. right here on CNN. And join me every day this week right here at noon Eastern when we go behind the headlines and inside politics. And if the last two hours were a bit of a clue, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Hope to see you there. Thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 